Welcome to Faithful Conversations. Faithful Conversations is a podcast dedicated to discussing topics relating to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in an open and positive manner. I welcome honest concerns and questions in an environment of faith. Hi, my name is Ross Barron, and this is Faithful Conversations, and I'm going to be your host. Today I have as guests uh, my friend Nate Williams, who is also a professor in the religion department at BYU-Idaho. Nate received his bachelor's degree from BYU in pre-med zoology, a master's degree from Idaho State University in education, and his doctorate in education at the University of Idaho, also in education. Um, he has five kids, and he grew up in Sugar City. Nate, welcome to Faithful Conversations. Thanks, Ross. Um, the, today's conversation is going to be about conversion, about being converted, about what those things mean. And so I wanted to kind of maybe start out by asking the question, and we can discuss it. What are some things you think Latter-day Saints, Saints mean when they use the word conversion or converted? What are your thoughts about that? One of the things I've been thinking about this this uh, recently, Ross, that I kind of maybe even ask you back is uh, – to what degree is conversion, when they talk about it, an experience? And what degree is it a process? Because I think when Latter-day Saints talk about it, I think sometimes they might have both things in mind. And uh, to what degree is the event part of the process? Mm. And um, I don't know. You know, uh, I think each person might have something unique they talk about when they talk about that conversion. I know sometimes the Latter-day Saints, we focus on a process that needs to take place. We maybe minimize um, evangelical friends that talk about an event, a day, a time, a moment. But I think we all have both. Right. Even Latter-day Saints, we have a moment that clearly defines maybe a turning of our heart. Right. And then we have a process that might be very, um, very subtle that perfects that turning. Right. Or so is that line upon line turning uh, and, and perfecting of the, the event moment that got us clearly faced the right way. But then maybe the purifying of the heart and the mind process that might be more subtle, that might be part of that process. So I think Latter-day Saints probably could mean any of those range of things, and trying to figure th that out is So when we talk about a convert, generally that's the nomenclature in the church that means somebody who's joined the church, right, and and usually think, as yes. an adult. And usually they've had an event that's turned them the right way, right. maybe not saying they're converted. Right. But when are you converted? Because, I mean, I, I've been wrestling with Peter's question about when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Right. Is it once you've had an event? Is it once you've gone 50%, now you're at a point of conversion? Because it looks like from Joseph Smith, perfection goes even beyond the grave. Right. So I'm trying to think, what does that mean in the Savior's vocabulary, too, or others saying, is it once you've had an experience with the Holy Ghost that Peter was lacking? So, Elder Bednar... Uh, in his talk, he discussed the idea, like you said, of line upon line, precept on precept. In the book, True to the Faith, published by the church, it also talks about how it's a process. But your question about, so when when are we converted, right? I mean, um, so uh, the idea of a testimony, though. So let's, you have a testimony, and then we talk about converted. Certainly, you know people, and I know people, who would claim they have testimonies, but clearly are not converted. So maybe that's a helpful distinction. And in, in other words, uh, somebody who has a testimony knows by revelation, by the power of the Holy Ghost, that Jesus is the Christ, that the gospel's been restored in the latter days that the Book of Mormon is true. But what then what's the difference then between a testimony 
and conversion or being converted. In and your it view. seems like if they've had a testimony, a true testimony where the Holy Ghost has borne record to their mind and their heart of some gospel truth centered in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that that would be a key component of conversion. One of the things I also think is important is that I just think a testimony is not separate from a conversion. So what's a little bit of a mystery for me is people who say, I know, but don't do, are they in a process of losing what they don't know, would you think? Can you really maintain testimony if you don't pursue the path of conversion? I guess that's part of what I'm yeah, wrestling with too. I think that's correct, and it's interesting because uh, so testimony is a necessary but not sufficient. In other words, yes. you can have a testimony and not be converted, but you can't be converted and not have a testimony. Yes. Right? Yes. So that's an interesting kind of insight. And somebody who has a testimony but doesn't work on being converted, yeah, uh, I would say that eventually that testimony starts to dwindle and eventually will go away. To uh, Alma 47, the last verse seems to indicate that those that had testimonies then go away uh, actually end up worse than those who never had testimonies. In other words, the light gets taken away. Leaves them in more of a spiritually callous position. Exactly, exactly. And one of the reasons that I asked Nate to come on the show is because Nate's from Sugar City, Idaho. Sugar City, Idaho is a little teeny town, a little north of Rexburg, Idaho, and has a population in 2010 of about 1,500 people. When Nate was growing up, it probably had 1,000 to 1,200 people. Extremely dense concentration of Latter-day Saints. Probably 98%. I, I, I don't know that for a fact. Well, I think in high school, we had one young person who was not a member of the church, but a very good person, and I think he even went to seminary with us. Okay, so, so maybe one. So one that you knew in Sugar City <laughs> yeah. growing up. All right, so... Nate's from a highly, like, it would be parallel to somebody growing up in Rome and being Catholic, right? I mean, it's like <laughs> Sugar City is that, right? The Rome, the Rome of, Mormonism. of Mormonism. There we and go. And <laughs> so, um, while I grew up in Los Angeles and did not grow up as a member of the church, you were your mom and dad are members of the church, that's correct? Yes. And so, you many were Many years back. And you joined generations. the church. You were baptized when you were eight. Yes. Yeah. And I joined the church when I was 18. And I thought, it's an interesting can- uh, kind of maybe two different people from two different streams that have both ended up, and I would say both in the process of conversion. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I thought maybe you could share with us. So in your mind, when did you become converted, or what? What was the moment or process for you? Share that with us. Well, it's interesting in teaching it at BYU Idaho, like we both do in the religion department, where we've come together, we share similar thoughts and beliefs, yet very different backgrounds. I teach a class called Intro to Mormonism, and in that class, these students have all these amazing, very diverse backgrounds and conversion experiences, and I'm the only one allowed in the class because I'm the teacher who has been raised in the church. And it's very interesting to compare my experiences to theirs and find similarities, but yet see differences. And so for me, I think one of the challenges of growing up in LDS communities is to have maybe what we would call a cultural conversion, where you grow up accepting uh, norms and beliefs and behaviors, and you don't look at the spiritual roots. But... uh, I think one of the things that helped me look at the spiritual roots early is that I had a father who had been excommunicated. 
And so I had to look pretty quickly when a father doesn't partake of the sacrament or when a father doesn't go to priesthood. Um, How old were you when that happened? Eight or just right around there. Still remember it pretty well. Uh, the day that was brought up at family night, that uh, there was, that I, my memories kind of, I'm sure, faded from those things, but sensitive and aware enough that something spiritually tragic had happened. And so I think I was very sensitive to that. And it's interesting to see how all my brothers and sisters have responded a little bit differently depending on their age. Some who hadn't been born and grew up in that situation, some who were right there. Me and my brother, I think, uh, very aware of it and had decided that uh, we wanted some answers and needed to know some things. And so seminary was a great interest to us. Church was, uh, my mother was amazing to be steady and consistent and put us in the right environment where the Spirit could work. So I remember many moments at church, a lot of times at missionary welcome homes, feeling what I would say is the spirit thing. Wow, that's different. Mm. Um, but I don't know if that, again, was conversion or anything. It was just maybe little hints that you, you ought to do something about it. You ought to use your agency and try to figure this out. There's something good here. Uh, I like Alma 32 as kind of a, uh, an analogy for conversion that might hit testimony, might hit a lot of things about uh, what we're going to talk about, but I need to move along here. Well, and, I, I guess I'm yeah. saying is I, I think there comes a time in, in most Latter-day Saints' lives where I, you get it. Yeah, and All I, of a sudden, I'll, you get yeah. it. And and so, let me give you an idea. It's like um, you, you go to the Saturday night session of state conference. In other words, in other words you get it. Yeah. I don't have to kind of – you know, drag you to the That's session. Right. I mean, and I, but you get it now. Yeah. So I, I guess I'm asking you, when when do you think you started getting I it? I think probably around, I'd say 12 or 13. I'd gone to with my parents to visit my grandparents in, in uh, Ammon, Idaho, outside of Idaho Falls. They were reading the Book of Mormon. They're like 70 years old. They're surrounded in the Book of Mormon. I thought, wow, that's interesting <laughs> image there. And on the way home, my mom just said uh, they had set a goal to read a couple chapters a night. They knew that if they did that, they could read it between each general conference. Hmm. I thought, oh, I could do that. And so I made that my goal. I'd remember a, a few years earlier, my grandma had given me a Book of Mormon for Christmas, and I thought that was kind of a lame Christmas present. <laughs> there, he wanted toys. <laughs> a book huh? about the Savior yeah. on the Savior's birthday. Yes, I wasn't had, didn't have that image, and yet that's the one present I probably still have today that I treasure so much. So I read that, and I didn't do a great job concentrating when I read quietly, so I read out loud. And I'd read two chapters a night out loud, and I would pray. I knew Moroni's promise. I knew that um, my teachers had taught me about it, so I'd pray. I'd lay on my parents' bed. I would read out loud, and nothing would happen. And nothing would happen. And I just kept going. I was kind of getting a little frustrated. And I think, um, I wish I kept a better journal. I was in somewhere in the war chapters in Alma when I had an experience with the Holy Ghost that just overwhelmed me. And I knew the Book of Mormon was the Word of God. I, I think when I interpreted those thoughts and feelings first, though, it was very clear to me what they were saying, which is Nephi is real. Alma is real. This is real. These are people that really live, that you can trust, that, you, uh, that struggle to survive, that struggle to live gospel principles. I felt like I was becoming introduced to them. 
as much as I was to God that uh, I could I could trust them as real people and real characters. So authenticity of the Book of Mormon, though difficult for me to defend some aspects, spiritually I feel very comfortable that not only is the Book of Mormon true, but that Nephi is true. So you were 12 and or 13 many, at this point? Yes, and that, that pretty much sunk me in the faith. That so that, I'm, that really... I'm would, committed. Right, and so, but we would call that Normally, that's a testimony experience. Yeah. So that's kind of like you said, the springboard for your for getting it for the process not of not having conversion. to drag me. Right. I would initiate right. being at church. I would initiate my home teaching. I would initiate okay. getting my patriarchal blessing. There was no parents dragging me on a mission. Oh, look at that! And you and served everything. a mission when you were nineteen. Yeah. You served in the Denver the Denver mission, the Denver Colorado mission. Denver mission, Colorado Denver mission, and it, this just deepened then the process yeah, of working your to save money for a mission. That wasn't. I would, I would save it all. Hmm. And so none of those things, those, those, it's interesting how President Benson talks about when once you're converted, everything seems to fall into place, priorities, mm-hmm. um, friends, mm-hmm. everything. And so that wasn't difficult. There was no challenge not to swear, or partake of anything. And some people, again, would say, well, that's your culture. You grew up in saying, Well, that was, but for me, it was a very spiritual choice. And personal. It's right. Very spiritual, very personal. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay, so my experience is different, of course. Um, I grew up in uh, the western or maybe northwestern part of L.A. My, I grew up Jewish. My mom and dad were phenomenal parents. My grandparents, my sister, my whole family was wonderful. Very um, – very positive. Uh, I I went to Hebrew school. We went to synagogue, um, and I enjoyed that immensely. Um, when I was a young child, similar, maybe eight to ten years old, I started having what Hugh Nibley called the terrible questions: hmm. Why am I here? What yeah. happens after we die? That was my big question, and I never really had the question: Where did I come from? That never really was part of it. Go I'm going to quickly just insert one of the things. I think those big questions started hitting me around that same time of some of my family's um, spiritual challenges because the Teton Dam broke in oh. 1976. I'm right. a young person. I know it's not a big, huge natural calamity, but it was enough to displace us from our home, enough for me as a young child, about eight, to wonder, to know there was about 10, a dozen deaths in the area. But just to start wondering, and I had a great question about death. Mm. So, yes. is, is that it? Yeah, and same, same here. So mm. I grew up in an environment where uh, we talked about the Holocaust and the mm. inhumanity and the injustice, and, and those were troubling. And um, so I wanted to know. So I, I asked questions, and again, um, wonderful parents and grandparents uh, talked to the rabbis, uh, and there really wasn't a great answer, at least that satisfied me. And so I continued kind of my normal pursuits as a young person, but was really interested in religion. I studied Buddhism and Hinduism and Taoism. Um, I went and learned how to do transcendental meditation from the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. This is the 1970s. Mm. And um, had a great experience with all those things. Never united myself to any of those faiths, but learned a lot, but never really found the soul-satisfying answers. As a senior in high school... Um, really kind of directionless, and my friends, not a lot of direction as as well. Um, I decided in a very bizarre way, and I'm not sure where this sprang from, but I decided to read the New Testament. And I I made a personal choice that I was going to find, I never laid eyes on the New Testament, but I thought I'm going to. So I went to our, the high school library and 
started reading the New Testament. Now, the the interesting thing was it was a Phillips Modern English version of the New Testament. I didn't know there were different versions or different translations, but so I was reading the kind of colloquial, hey man, come follow me <laughs> version of the New Testament. But I read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, I had read the Old Testament and loved it. But when I read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I had an experience uh, using now our language now, Latter-day Saints speak, where I felt the Spirit. And like your experience where Nephi was real and Alma was real, I was having the experience, this is real about Jesus. He, this is true. And it was permeating me. And uh, senior in high school, um, I have long hair. I'm wearing my Led Zeppelin t-shirt, you know, the whole thing. And I'm and now the interesting thing is I'm not grasping necessarily all of the things in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but I'm having this overwhelming experience about Jesus being the Christ. I subsequently go to, because I'm curious, this young man in my high school invited me to a um, Maranatha club meeting. This is a born-again Christian meeting on the campus. Hmm. Afterwards, he said to me this. He said, whatever you do, don't read the Book of Mormon. Now, <laughs> I didn't bring – I didn't know what Mormons were. I didn't know anything about Mormonism. And But I figure if you tell a 17-year-old, whatever you do, don't fill in the blank, <laughs> that you're going to go run out and do precisely that thing. So, in fact – very shortly thereafter, I talked to a guy who was a Mormon, and I said, hey, Craig, what do Mormons believe? And this is right before a class, and he gave me the plan of salvation. And Craig essentially answered all of my questions in about five minutes. Um, and it was an amazing experience. And Craig uh, was a young man who'd been raised in the church, and it, the doctrine was in his soul, and he was able to converse with me articulately about the plan of salvation. So I started saying, Craig, you've just answered all my questions. Uh, I mean, I, and I started peppering him with more questions. And he said, well, his dad needed to talk to me about that. That day after school, I went, talked to his dad and got a copy of the Book of Mormon and read it and had a similar experience you had. As I was reading the Book of Mormon, I had an overwhelming experience during it uh, where it was conveyed to me spirit to spirit that in fact, it was true that Joseph Smith was a prophet and that the Book of Mormon was the Word of God. And then the, the conversion process started. So that was my testimony. And then the conversion. So you, because of events in your life, went down a similar, in some respects, the process was identical. Well, that's, yeah, that's why maybe we could sift out together. So what are the elements of testimony? And maybe Alma 32 will be helpful language that, that were characteristics of our testimony, but that are also repeated that are characteristics of conversion, where we both. Here's a few here. Well, you, even though you had, what, long hair and Led Zeppelin, I, I, I had short <laughs> hair. I felt a little bit rebel once I let it uh, get a little below my ears. Mm. And I think one day I felt a little bad that I wore a T-shirt, the Coke T-shirt to, to school. Um, but other than that, uh, so so we both had a desire. We both had uh, questions. And, and, and I'm just looking at the process that you right. never graduate from. And that starts maybe with testimony, and if pursued, can lead to conversion. We both the Book of Mormon somewhere's got to fit in there, but we both had had knowledge given to us to act upon. We both had prayer. We both had spirit. We both had swelling feelings. Um, again, for many of us, th those may have been stages where the seed was just breaking through the soil because we both had many experiences later on 
where the atonement, where gospel and ordinances and covenants were really powerfully communicated to us. Numerous moments. Right. It seems that it seems that conversion is this idea of so testimony is knowledge borne by the Holy Ghost to one spirit. It seems that conversion then becomes the daily application of the principles of truth. In other words, now I turn to God. Now I commit to God. And so we then daily start our path of discipleship. And then that deepens your testimony. So testimony and conversion then start to reciprocate, if you will. Yeah. You know the the Hebrew and the Greek better than me, so help me if this if this is a proper analogy for the word conversion. Uh, I've been curious about that, but we often um, convert when we go to Canada our our U.S. money over to Canadian money, convert it or exchange it. Mm-hmm. And I've thought a lot about this idea of conversion being a person entering into a relationship with this father and the son where they exchange the natural man mm-hmm. for who they are and they get in that process of exchanging that's throughout their life, that they they live in that relationship, mm-hmm. that that's conversion in, in some ways to me is that maybe I haven't yet arrived at perfection, but I have chosen to live in this relationship where I constantly exchange and uh, find my badness, my weakness, my imperfection, and wanting grace. And through prayer, through obedience, through ordinances, covenants, I find him very generously exchanging with me something much more better and beautiful than I have. And so in that kind of that process of transformation. So the covenant, the covenant relationship then, using your metaphor, you're exchanging so when you enter the kingdom of God, the currency of the natural man no longer is valid. Yeah, not and accepted. So you exchange that for the born again, if you will, That's right. uh, the person who's in the process of changing and becoming like the Father and the Son through the power of the Holy Ghost and the atonement of Jesus Christ. Is that is that a good? Yeah. So the Greek word, interestingly, f- that's used in the New <clears throat> Testament for converted or convert. In fact, when Peter, Jesus says to Peter, when thou art converted, it's the word that means to turn again. Which is so linked then to repent. Exactly. I mean, I'm trying to think, what are some of the synonyms right. that would go with conversion? Repentance has to be right there. That right. I live alive in Christ through repentance. And right. if you do that, would you say a person's converted? Yes. I, I mean, I'm trying to think. I, when, I process. When, when, right. Yes. Yeah. So, shuv is the Hebrew word, and it literally means to turn. So, shuv is translated by the King James translators as repent, Yeah, but it literally means to turn, to turn back to God. So, I face God, right? And so, this idea of, again, now, now you're, you're linking repentance with conversion, which I think is accurate. You're hesitant to say converted. You, you like to say, I'm in a process correct, of conversion. Right, right. And I like that too. Yeah. Uh, what do you think the Savior meant when he talked to Peter? When thou art converted. I consider, my, I guess there might be a threshold. Like, are you in the process, I Peter? think there might be a threshold, though. That's that, what I was wondering. You, you know, there is a threshold of commitment where somebody says, okay, you know, I'm in. I'm all in. I'm following the Savior. I'm following him no matter what. Now, listen, I might they, have. They could still fall from grace. Exactly. And I and still might have can, some things I need to work exactly, on. Exactly. There's still have to but press I forward. But I am. I've hit the threshold. I'm all in. Yeah. Yeah, I'm converted. Now now you brought up something interesting that I'm fascinated too, and that's with you know, you used the word deconverted before we started going on the air. 
Um, I, that's not a word we normally would use, but I think it happens. And you just brought up being falling from grace. Yes. So somebody who was converted, that means they had a testimony. That means they were exchanging their natural man for the new person, new creature in Christ. How, how does one get deconverted? What, what goes on? Well, the process that led a person to being wholly committed or offering their whole soul. And I also think another word closely con- connected with, with conversion is consecration. I, I've also wondered about the word in the sacrament prayer that I'm willing to keep all the commandments. I think that person's converted. I think that's the spirit of Jesus Christ in their heart that there's no holding back. It's all, and there's a willingness. It doesn't mean they're perfect, and that's maybe one way we can come to grips with being worthy but not perfect when we enter into the temple. Because we're, we're willing to keep all. Right. And there's nothing really I'm consciously in my mind and heart keeping back. I think that is a spirit of Jesus Christ. And the moment a person consciously starts to hold a few things and and develop a carnal mindset, I think then comes a dangerous mm. thorn that can grow into an infection that can stifle the spirit, that can do things that would cause a person to get to a point where it might be as if they had never known these things, sadly. Right. That's interesting you bring that up. I remember an experience I had. I'd just been released from being bishop. This mm-hmm. is down in Southern California. And the new bishop, it was a fifth Sunday, and he was he combined the priesthood and relief society. And he had he said this was uh, let's see this has to be early nineties, excuse me, late nineties, early two thousands. He said um, that he wanted everyone to make sure when they use the computer or the internet to use it in a public area. And I remember I was in that meeting, and I remember thinking instantly, I'm an exception to that. Hmm. And so I kind of just said, I, I don't need to obey that counsel. And I was driving home from church and the still small voice said, you are not an exception. Hmm. And I realized how that one little small hinge could have been a disaster. So, so what if conversion is linked to just simply having that willing, broken heart, contrite spirit that is susceptible to Christ-like counsel even when our natural inclinations seem to suggest this might be foolishness, this right. might be simplistic, right. that we have a Christ-like distrib- disposition like he had to the Father to always do those things that please him. Well, that's interesting because in Matthew 18, verse 3, the Savior says, except you be converted and become as a little child. Jesus, submissive, meek. Submissive, gentle. meek, like a little child. Yeah. So that's interesting you brought that up. Jesus never rebukes anyone for believing too much. There's not a single occasion where he rebuked anybody for believing too much. He, he did rebuke people for being faithless, for not believing. But I think it's fascinating that you brought up this idea that maybe sometimes it seems to our natural man eyes, this is ridiculous. You know, we talk about gold plates and Urim and Thummim and visions and prophets and seers and translating by the gift and power of God. And Maybe to the scientist or the philosopher, those things sound beyond belief, when in fact, um, those are the very heart and soul, the meat, if you will, of revealed religion. One of the things I've wondered about as maybe a challenge of our profession, Ross, is that we like to have answers. I mean, you were seeking answers, and yet every Latter-day Saint knows that every answer we have has a hundred more questions potentially 
surrounding it, if they think deeply about it. And eventually, yes, we love and treasure all our questions, I mean answers. Sincerely, we realize there's a thousand more questions we seek for personally, we look to for prophets, and we patiently wait on the Lord for, for more light and knowledge. But I've wondered, Ross, tell me what you think about this. I've wondered if it really comes down to, I think about, the, again, Third Nephi 9, for those who've made it to the temple through the experiences, and the Savior says something about still getting converted, still needing to come unto him, still needing to repent and be converted, that I may heal you. And then he talks about having a broken heart and a contrite spirit. So this is my thought, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. What if it really just comes down to, yeah, knowing some answers, but really having the right heart and the right mind, and then he can work with us eternally and teach us things as they really are, as they really will be. That we, we have a little, but we still probably see in a glass darkly. We love to connect the dots and look pretty certain, but there probably should be a spirit of meekness in all of us that, you know what, we understand it as best as he's chosen to reveal it. And if I have the right heart and mind and I can, I can respond to a priesthood counsel to put a computer somewhere, maybe I can have the right heart and mind that can be taught by the Father and the Son. I think, that's, what do you think? I, 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 I think that's right on. I, I think that the link, so you, the, the Lord gives us answers. We have the plan of salvation revealed. The missionaries teach from the lessons outlined in Preach My Gospel, which give amazing answers to life's quote-unquote terrible questions. But like you said, each question answered can spawn hundreds of other super interesting and relevant questions. That's where I think then trust in God your relationship with God comes into play. Meaning, I now trust the Lord and I have deep abiding within my heart this, this knowledge that God lives, that Jesus Christ is in fact the Son of God, and that while I don't know all the answers now, I know enough. And like Elder Neil L. Anderson said, knowing what I know is enough. Does that make sense? Yeah. And it's not that I shouldn't seek more or that we shouldn't um, desire to study more or to go to the Lord or to fast or to pray. But it seems like you're right. There are certain things we're not going to get full reconciliation with in mortality. I mean, we live by faith. And faith isn't blind. That's an interesting topic in and of itself. Hmm. Faith is rooted in the knowledge of who God is and my relation to God, and therefore isn't blind in any way, shape, or form but allows me to push forward even when I don't have all the answers. But yeah. I believe it's linked to my knowledge of who God is and my relation to God. Does that make sense? So broken heart, contrite spirit, is that the fruits of conversion then? Yes. That you have really maybe pressed forward to a point that you're starting to taste some of the precious fruit on the tree. Right. Um, and um, I, I'm also interested in your thoughts on this. So. I'll do interviews for prospective missionaries going out in the mission field. And I'll ask them, so when did your testimony, your knowledge of the truthfulness of the church, go from maybe being, you know, you, you believe because mom and dad believed or because you lived in a culture that believed to where it was your own? And I've had about, and I don't have this statistically, this is anecdotal, but I've had a significant group, maybe about a third, who have looked at me and said, I've always known. 
So I, I'm interested in that. So, this, so, so they don't really talk about an event like nope, you and I did nope. with the Book of Mormon. So this, that is a, kinda, this is another group who say, I've always known. Do you worry about that? No. In fact, they look me in the eye and, and they'll say to me, I, I had one young lady say to me, she said, I, when I was, I can't even remember not knowing. I remember in nursery, now that yeah. in nursery, is you're 18 just... months old, I knew. And I think, huh. Now, is this just a gift? Is this yeah. pre-mortal valiancy? I mean, is this... I, so you, Sugar City, yeah. converted kind of your ex experience you had, my conversion process. For about a third of these young people serving missions, they they never had the event, at least that was noticeable to them. Yeah. And maybe this is the Elder Bednar idea of the light gradually, gradually. you know, the sun rising. When I look at the life of Joseph Smith... And maybe we could talk sometime yeah. too about the first vision. Yeah. It seemed like one thing he had in common with a lot of the conversion stories I've read from my students who write about theirs in my class is somewhat of a troubled upbringing. That all the answers religiously are not unified in the family. And he's got questions at a young age. So what you're seeing, though, is an interesting maybe phenomenon that's a little different saying, all the answers have been there. The gospel seems to have been lived for the most part with, you know, some challenges like we all face in mortality. But these people don't really seem to have had a major family religious crisis that caused them to get something on their own. But I don't know if it's premortally or just they've been in such a pure, safe culture that it's just kind of woven into their nature, believing. Um testimony well and that's Again. interesting you bring up joseph smith i think joseph smith becomes the paradigm of yeah. joseph smith is the seeker who is looking for answers and who yeah. follows the pattern that turns, you laid out of the scriptures follows the spirit to prayer has the father and the son visit him right is pretty sure with the knowledge would you say testimony yes I mean, it looks like Joseph personally has a long ways to still grow in his in heart and of, mind. Right, in terms of who he is. Yeah. As far as his knowledge of, who of God, is of God and, and that God lives, certain. he's certain. Yes. On a scale of 1 to 10, he's yes. 11, right? And so, um, but as far as his, in fact, in section 20 of the Doctrine and Covenants, he says, you know, he fell back into some foibles. That's right. And, and he's he, in know, the process. Never to be guilty so, of any major transgressions, but he wanted us to be clear that, I guess, wanted us to know that yeah. he wasn't in any way, shape, or form perfect, right? So what do you take still back to the missionaries? These young people? You're going out, just like... I wonder if that is this, you know, Isaiah 54, and all thy children shall be taught of the Lord. You know, I wonder Have if they this bound is... Now, is this degree? the fruit of righteous families, moms and dads, who raise their children in truth and righteousness, who have family prayer, family scripture study, the spirits in the home, and they don't, they literally, their spirits respond to that spirit. Now, again, that's testimony versus conversion. These young people who told me they always knew aren't saying they've always been righteous. It'll be interesting to see what they would say about that after two years, kind of out in more of a little more fallen world, a little more opposition, more challenge. Right, on the mission you're saying. And say, how has that changed? Right. What you, now, I don't know. on that subject, did, did the mission, so for Nate Williams, Sugar City Boy, goes on a mission to, to Colorado, you know, out from the umbrella of the Mormon cuddly culture. Now, did that radically change you or did that just deepen what you already knew? 
I think both. I mean, there was certainly deepening, but I mean, there was certainly a, a big cultural shock. Uh, probably one of the first times I'd ever really seen or interacted with a black person. I mean, there just wasn't any, a few Hispanics in Sugar City at the time. But, uh, I mean, just many black people there in East Denver, teaching them, loving them. Culturally, I'm kind of in a whole different world, driving on six freeways, things like that. And I'm just sitting there thinking, but then experientially, just amazing experience. One, I, I get robbed. I have an amazing shake up there. I'm early on my mission, just a couple of months out, and I'm like clinging to any kind. And I'm a, I'm a mama's boy. I grew up there and all that kind of cultural security. And now I've got robbed. We never locked our cars. We left our keys in our car. Right. Very different than maybe your L.A. Bringing, upbringing. That's correct. And, uh, and so I'm in a whole cultural shock. But all of these experiences are just driving me closer to the Lord. I remember just after being robbed, going home that night, thinking, all I really want is my journal, my scriptures. Um, and, and getting a letter later on that my sister's husband, who's was LDS and mission, return missionary and marrying the temple that that they're getting a divorce and and going through that Russell's mission and all those experiences with the Book of Mormon with my I mean it rat I mean say I mean I'd like to think I was pretty amazingly converted but it was a, it was an amazing experience all of it combined to say I'm even more in I've right. seen too much of the hand of the Lord change people's lives and touch my own life and rescue me and deliver me and I've seen the power of the word and people's lives and sometimes it stuck and sometimes it didn't and and uh now i think it's so. an interesting thing that the lord the process of calling full-time missionaries so he calls you know nate williams from sugar city idaho to denver yeah uh, you know you know on purpose so that you can have that experience right i mean you're, you're gonna have to grapple with some some difficult big city uh non-LDS issues, correct? Yeah. I have a friend who was called as a mission president, and he shared with me, this is a man who was called as a mission president who'd never served a mission when he was younger. So imagine, he wasn't even quite sure of the difference between a district and a zone. Hmm. And he got called to the Philippines, and he didn't serve as a, a mission, mission as, a, as a mission president. Didn't speak, didn't speak Tagalog, didn't speak the oh. languages. And um, he was desperate. I mean, he had to do transfers. He couldn't pronounce most of the missionaries' names, couldn't pronounce the villages or towns in which they were going to be transferred to. And um, he had received some counsel from President Eyring because he said to President Eyring, um, what in the world do I do? Should I go counsel with <laughs> other mission presidents? And President Eyring said, nope. He says, when you're humble enough and when you get your driven to the knees, the Lord will make you a good mission president. And that's exactly what he did. This seems to be that broken heart contrite there spirit. You Once you to, get there... You've got a level of conversion, of discipleship that we don't worry about you. You'll figure out the Lord's work. You're in the church. You're in the kingdom if you've got that. Right. You're obedient. You're converted. Now yeah. you've got to go to the Lord, right? Yeah. And he's going to direct his work. Live in that relationship of repentance and revelation. Right. So right. as I thought about it, another thought or another um, a scripture that came to my mind about what does conversion mean when Joseph Smith reveals, uh, has revealed to him the degrees of glory and describes celestial people, I thought this was very interesting because we live in, a, I think, a culture where many Latter-day Saints feel pressured to live all the rules, mm -hmm. live all the laws, and maybe feel a heightened sense of uh, pressure from their, 
Latter-day Saint cultural communities to to just be towing the line on everything, whether that be self-imposed or culturally um, situated, I don't know. But this scripture has given me a lot of comfort and I think describes a degree of conversion. Verse 60 in section 76 is just a simple phrase that says, concerning celestial people, they shall overcome all things. So whether it be figuring out a mission as a mission president, or whether it be figuring out what to do after you get robbed, or maybe a wayward child, how to figure that out, and they just don't overcome by their own grit, but verse 54 says they overcome by faith. And very clearly in verse 69, that faith is in Jesus Christ. They're made perfect through him. And so I think mortality, I think the church, I think family is so designed to give us experiences, numerous ones where we have to overcome our lack of knowledge, our, our lack of physical strength, our lack of compassion, our lack of purity. And celestial people just simply get in the process of overcoming. That's conversion to me. They just live in that life. It's getting another one's going to come. And hopefully it will deepen and expand. Come back here. I, it should do both. Mm -hmm. It should deepen what all you know, but also maybe should increase or expand. And that you, a converted person, never stops overcoming. It's like a celestial person. They just, they experience it. They turn to Christ. They turn to his grace. They plead to the Father. They go to their knees. And they have multiple experiences of being changed through uh that process right. i don't know yeah no, that's, that's great just, i like that i love the overcome all things that's what a celestial being is th and that to me is conversion they're right. committed to christ they're loyal to him they know there's one place they can go to always that's consistent with all the uh, all the variables of mortality there's one thing and they consistently go to that okay that source. so so let me bring up this maybe this will be our last little thing we'll talk about here um so the first presidency and the quorum of the twelve come out with some thing that you disagree with. There might be some stand they've taken or some policy change. Um, for some Latter-day Saints, that becomes a watershed moment, either for good or for evil. Um, you find some yeah. people leaving the church. Or, no. So, so how does conversion play into that? So the president of the church comes up with, you know, again, X issue. I don't want to be super topical about it because no. it could be anything. What, what are your thoughts about that in terms of conversion and responding to those kinds of situations? I uh, never really had to deal with, I don't think, anything when I was young. You know, the first presidency had come to, Rex, to Idaho a, a little bit with the gambling issue. wasn't much of a problem for me. Uh, but I remember on my mission having an experience that where President Benson spoke in February of 1987. I had only been out a couple months and spoke to the mothers in Zion. I was a missionary, just made me homesick. <laughs> it didn't, I didn't have any of the challenging, controversial issues that many in the church may have wrestled with at that moment. I was just like, man, my mom's the greatest thing. I'm so, I just was filled with gratitude. I was filled with all these other feelings that other members who may have been in different circumstances were really wrestling with their faith about, well, what do I do with my employment and my bills? Well, and, you're talking about, because President Benson, just to clarify for everyone, yeah. President Benson in February 1987 had basically asked the mothers to... Come home. Come home. To leave the world and to come to their children. Right. And uh, so using that, again, I know that's a little 
maybe topical there, but uh, certainly yes. But for a moment, I think when you come across those moments, you can't forget the principles that brought you to Christ in the first place. You don't abandon it because of your rational theories. I just think that that's the most foolish thing to do, is for a person to just simply go to their cultural, intellectual traditions and trump prophets Mm -hmm. and the Spirit. Prophets may not have perfectly articulated it. They may have wrestled to convey that, but the Lord works through a converted person, through a prophet. And that said, I mean, there's that personal channel of conversion, but there's also the priesthood one, that there's experiences with the atonement of Christ I never would have gotten without the help of the priesthood. The laying on of hands, the ordinances, the words spoken that just penetrated me when President Benson talked about the Book of Mormon or something else that I treasure. That's as much a part of my conversion as my own crying out in the wilderness or my closet. See, that's super interesting because that links then the ordinances with conversion. Yes. So when when the Lord appears to Joseph Smith and he says, they draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They teach for doctrines, the commandments of men, having a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. And right, so there's his kind of. By the way, that is the only thing. And in the ordinances, the power is made God, manifest. So, so that. But again, using that statement by the Savior to Joseph Smith in the Grove is the only thing put in quotes. I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but if you go through the Pearl of Great Price in Chapter One of Joseph Smith History, that is the only thing he put in quotes. Hmm. Uh, it's it's like Joseph was trying to say. I'm not paraphrasing what the Savior said here. This is exactly what the Savior said. And, and I think that's fascinating. So they have a form and they have lips, but there's no hearts and no power because they teach for doctrines the commandments of men. And then in section 84, of course, it's revealed that it's in the ordinances thereof that the power of godliness is made manifest to men in the flesh. So I think that's super interesting that, that they're linked together. I think that's powerful. The idea of being baptized and then receiving by the laying on of hands the gift of the Holy Ghost, that if I'll allow it, will then, line upon line, precept and precept, change me from the natural man to the born-again man. I love that. So I think that's a, a good... So when you look at fruits of conversion, maybe ways people can monitor, am I converted? Is it working? Is the process going in my life? Here's a few. Add to it. Refine these. I think a converted person feels greater love for others and for God. They, they feel an expanding circumference of love. Two, they have a diminished desire for evil, like it says in Mosiah. It's becoming less and less, and desire for good is probably getting greater and greater. Um, Third, the welfare of others may be tied with love and the spirit. It becomes more and more important than their own welfare. They start to lose themselves and care more about the salvation of others and laboring for them, as we see many cases in the Book of Mormon where a natural reflex of Christ working in the heart and mind of a person is that they go devote themselves to, to bless others. I, There's I a would, few that come I, I, I love those. Or I, think, I think Lehi, when Lehi partakes of the fruit, what's his first desire? As soon as he partakes of the fruit. Of the love of God. I, of the, to, he then immediately wants his family partake. Yeah. When Enos gets his personal forgiveness of sins, 
instantly then wants to turn to you bless turn others. As he when the him. sons of Mosiah, right, and Alma, when they have their conversion experience, instantly then petition the king to then go on a mission to the Lamanites, right? So I think that's right on. The only other thing I might add would be the mind of Christ, hmm. that that a converted person starts to desire to think the things, say the things, and do the things that God, that Christ wants yeah. him to think, say, and do. Process of becoming one. Exactly. Huh. And that you live by every word that proceeds forth from the mouth of God. So that your life is guided, directed, and literally moved by your desire to please him. So let's just throw out something kind of broad and global here, Ross. There's a lot of people in the world who see differently than we do. We've come from very different paths. We've come together in a pretty unified way of thinking and feeling about the Savior, about life and its purpose. Is there any way to bring about um, world peace, unity, without true conversion of what President Benson talks about, inside changing before outside conditions change? Politically, socially, morally, we just have people all over the map. Right. I, I guess my answer on that would be I, I believe sincerely that there are amazing, wonderful followers of God who are not members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So I believe that with all my heart. I believe that the answers to the world problems are found in conversion to God. So, I, so I, I believe you know examples like Mother Teresa, not a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, but certainly a true disciple of the Savior. Yeah. Um, the Amish people. I don't know if you remember that story where the those uh, that man, the milkman who I was do. an Amish, killed yeah. these young ladies in a school, and the way the Amish responded. And President James E. Faust in General Conference called them disciples of Jesus Christ, true yeah. Christians. Um, and so I believe that there are this this possibility, but the world, darkness covers the earth and gross darkness the minds of the people. That's section, that's Isaiah, and that's section 112 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And the solution is truly being converted to change the natural man. No external policy, philosophy, club, political movement, organization can actually do that. It might, it might. Uh, allow for the flourishing of that. So, for example, I believe, as the Doctrine and Covenants says, that the, the founders, that the Constitution of the United States was raised up so we could have pluralism, so we could have religious liberty, so the church could be restored upon the earth in the latter days. So these things could happen. It provides an environment it for those things to happen. It provides an environment, but it itself is not the answer. It itself is not the end. Yeah, so it's a means. It's a means it? okay. to an end. The kingdom of God... And it is actually answer. And it's a personal journey that each person has to make. Hmm. So with that, I, I'd like to thank all of you that have listened today to our podcast. Thank Nate Williams for his participation today. And I'm grateful for Kyson Kidd, who is the producer of this show and who is our recording engineer. If you have questions or comments, I invite you to please email me at b-a-r-o-n-r-d at gmail.com. And I'd be super interested to hear your comments, uh, any questions that you might have, or any ideas for further topics or guests that I might have on the show. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Ross Barron.